Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And in a few moments, I'll be welcoming Eleanor Matarese to the podcast. We have a really, really interesting conversation. Um, and yeah, it's it's very it's very welcome to me to have somebody from a country that we haven't had before on the podcast because um, if you think about it, the name World Wild Podcast, we are attempting or aspiring to have some kind of representation of what's going on uh, with human beings engaging with the wilds, especially through wild food and and uh, and um, all of the culture around it across the globe. So. Um, in a way, it's embarrassing that so many of our guests have been from so few countries. So yeah, it's it's really fantastic to to welcome Eleanor for that reason, apart from anything else. But uh, some of the subjects that we get into um, are also very very uh, essential to um, you know the wider themes that we're trying to cover about reengaging human beings with ecosystems and. and and what that all means. Um, and, and particularly, you'll see there's an exploration of the issue of language, which uh, I think is something we should explore more deeply from, from, from several different perspectives around the world, because obviously, as we, as we explore, you know, the languages do um, provide almost a, a documentation of people's relationship with um, other species and landscapes, the, the, the particular um, actual languages and local dialects as well. And I think they also provide a, a, a means to sort of be in the world differently. Um, so, it, you know, it's a big issue that I think we should probably explore more about the extinction of, of languages, that which, which are ways essentially of being in the world when people can talk about the world they're in in a way that, that um, basically carries on what's been passed down from many, many, many generations of people experiencing the world, experiencing the world and forming that way of conceptualizing and, and, and speaking about it that, that's embodied in, in that language. And uh, yeah, we're, we're actually, just, just to give some news, we're working on a, a foraging zine at the moment, which is going to pull together voices from um, several members of the Association of Foragers. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. It's going to be a zine that's aimed as a, you know, a, an outreach tool, basically, to, to enable um, people that either don't forage or have very basic knowledge of foraging to um, engage with the plants, mostly plants, in their immediate surroundings. And, and, and it'll be kind of relevant to urban contexts um, as much as anywhere else. So that's that's quite exciting in a multi-voice thing. And one of the articles that's going to go in there, there's a lady called Amy Rankin, who's going to be doing some stuff on indigenous languages in uh, the British Isles and how um, plants have been named and therefore um, the relationships that those those names have carried on through those traditions um, with those particular languages. The, the, the other thing about languages, and not so much... Um, necessarily kind of endangered indigenous languages, but uh, the work that Eleanor has done, which I think is quite unique, and we're going to hear more about that, just being a multilinguist, being able to access the uh, the different voices that are buried away there in historical texts and documents. It's a very, you know, very exciting way that we can we can reconnect with traditions. And, and, and um, because, you know, whilst I've touched on this elsewhere to, to really big up the uh, the power and in many senses superiority of oral traditions over the, the literary ones because they they are uh, so much more kind of alive you know that that, that that knowledge is transferred through actual acts of communication between people um, you know living bodies 
that are present in the same space talking to each other. So there is that kind of redressing the balance that, that the so-called pre-literate cultures are in many ways superior to us because of those kind of embodied experiences, those the, the, the knowledge is, is to do with presence and being passed on in a very intimate way between people from one generation to another. Still, all of the uh, the many texts that we've got can sometimes hold on to things that haven't been passed on uh, through those oral cultures. And so they have anchored memories and, and stories and recipes and, and approaches and relationships to plants hidden away in, in, in texts which maybe are not read. So, so what Eleanor has done is, is really powerful and exciting and, and um, quite unique, I think. So you'll get to hear more about that. But uh, I was talking to Joel, who, who's uh, our editor, the podcast editor, and he, he, was, he was describing Eleanor as, as like a kind of Indiana Jones of, of, of wild food knowledge, which I think that's quite exciting to think about it in that way. Okay, so that's that's enough for a preamble, I think, and um, we'll just get on now with a conversation with Eleanor. Perhaps we could start our chat with you just telling, telling a little bit of your story. Yeah, of course. So first of all, thank you for um, the invitation. It's very nice being here. And uh, well, I started uh, foraging and knowing wild food when I was a child. I mean, I was actually two years and a half because my grandmother, uh, I'm from Apulia, South Italy, and my grandmother used to uh, forage herself, not because um, we were poor in our family, but simply because it's, it was natural as it's, it really is, uh, it still is now. In uh, in South Italy, it's uh, it's common for people going in the countryside because almost everybody has got a, a field, a bit of land to go there and uh, uh, gather some wild herbs. And so I, I started like this. I have even counted the species she taught me about, <laughs> uh, 36, uh-huh. mainly, uh, you know, chicory, dandelion, the simplest one to begin with. And uh, when I was uh, nine years old, I was gifted with my first uh, knife to go alone. And, uh, well, we used to eat all those uh, species in the um, typical recipes of the, the farmers. Then later, uh, when I started, I, I began to study, you know, and uh, I, I graduated in foreign languages. So I had the opportunity to translate a lot of books. I started studying. Wow. Yeah, more species, more herbs. And the, the, the challenge was when I moved to North Italy and <laughs> I started living in the mountains. And the problem is that I have always been living in the on, on the seaside, so there were completely different species, and I, I start, really started studying a lot. So mm. that's the, the the base, I mean, of of my story. Uh, with this, there's also the fact that my my grandmother, when she was a child, her father was a chef. Well, actually, the the story is that I I wrote a book about my my foraging story and the publisher asked me but why did your mother uh, grandmother know so much about wild herbs 
And so I started, you know, delving into it. And I discovered that when my my grandmother was, um, let's say, eight, nine years old, she used to say, I went to an old big house and my mother, my great grandmother, used to put me socks on. And I said, why? I mean, that's because in the, the you know, you, during uh, the, the World War, uh, it was not so normal to wear socks and go outside uh, home. And uh, that was because her father was a chef and went to this uh, nobleman's house. And this nobleman from Rome had this big house uh, and uh, he worked as a chef. But there's also there was a botanist who was in care of his garden. And my, my grandmother... As a child, she used to stay with her, with her father in the kitchen, but at the same time in the garden with the botanist. And so she started learning all the binomials and all the plants. It's great, but where do the socks come in? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, she wore, she wore, wore the socks because she, she, she was going in a you know, noble environment and she needed to be well-dressed. Not as she was in the countryside. <laughs> and so I remember when I was a three, four, she, she, we, we, we went near the plants and she told me, you know, bellis perennis, the daisy, taraxacum mm. officinal. Uh, and I said, but why? I mean, uh, and she, t- she taught me every plant has got its name and its name, and it's better to learn them by heart because it's just like, you know, with people. And so Eleonora Matarese, Miles Irving, uh, Bellis Perennis, <laughs> and so on. So that's the base of the story. After that, uh, cooking has always been a pleasure for me. And uh, I've always been cooking at home for my sisters and my family. And one day uh, I worked as a congress organizer, as a translator. I've always been doing many things in my life. And um, I used to prepare cakes and uh, dinners for, you know, neighbors. Mm. And one of them told me, but what are you doing here? You need to to follow that path. And the the person to which I owe the, the, the fact that I followed my path was my previous boss, my last boss. I worked in a multinational company. And we, you know, we, in, in those places, they have uh, meetings for, for business, uh, team building, team building. And we, we went to a very famous restaurant near Tuscany. And once there, uh, my boss asked me to cook for all my colleagues. I was ashamed. I was <laughs> afraid because it was my first time in a restaurant. Uh, kitchen and uh, you know while cooking he came and told me what are you doing in this company this is not your path and so I I left everything and I opened my restaurant fantastic <laughs> thank you yeah it's been a great challenge actually yeah so you you were able to pull together some elements though like the the the, the, the cooking and and this knowledge about plants that that can yeah either in your restaurant right yeah yeah it's been the first i think the even the only one in italy to offer a kind of wild cuisine but plant-based that is you know there's tons of chefs chefs uh, using wild herbs but 
uh, together with meat or other ingredients. Yeah. My cuisine is practically wild-based. I only use uh, flour, parmesan and extra virgin olive oil. All the rest is wild species. So plants, uh, seaweed, uh, trees, uh, berries, whatever. That's incredible. And you're not using meat and fish, or, or you are? No, I use uh, meat and fish only if people request it. For example, for, uh, you know, marriages or if there's a party, they ask uh, finger food with some uh, meat or fish, I use it. But I prefer not to because I think it's a kind of philosophy. I mean, if I'm using wild plants, I, I think it's uh, also necessary for people to understand the value behind it. And also because um, I've been speaking about this with a, a great Italian chef about, you know, the flavors. If you use just plants, it's uh, just like our mouth uh, can taste better the, the, the subtle differences. For example, my... Uh, salad that in Italian we, we call misticanza because it's a mix right. uh, contains more than 100 species depending on uh, the season the micro season because actually my menu changes every let's say four seven days according to the, the my my morning forage and uh, it's uh, without any you know olive oil or vinegar or whatever I mean it's just plants because people need to taste every single leaf, flower, petal, whatever. And it's astonishing seeing their face when they try that. So no dressing at all, just plants? No. At the beginning, no. I bring the, 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 the dish and mm. I say, just taste. And if you like, after that, you can add dressing. Mm. And it's incredible because most of people don't add it. I mean, it's funny because... I've I've thought about this, and and when you think about the elements of the dressing, things that you might put in a dressing, you know, you might put in uh, some vinegar or or, or um, other source of acid like lemon juice. You might put in some mustard. Yeah, of course. You might put in some honey, and 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 things. And so, like, if you've got sorrel in your salad, well, maybe you don't need the vinegar. If you've got some mustard leaves in your salad, well, you don't need the mustard. And if you have something with a little bit of sweetness, then you don't need. So I have thought about this, but I've I've uh, I've not actually been that radical like like that to to serve it without without addressing at all. Well, that's interesting, and it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Well, actually, it's not being radical. I mean, it was a choice because I needed. I it was a kind of need on my side to let them people learn. Mm. Because, of course, uh, there's a kind of, of job behind it. You you can't put, let's say, 80% in the lion, otherwise the, the mix will be sour and it's not worth it. But um, uh, there's a kind of, you know, job done in order to uh, use different percentages of different herbs to obtain a kind of a balance. Yeah. And after that, as you said, well, actually, the dressing I propose is apart from extra virgin olive oil from Apulia, from my, my family, because we, we, we have olive trees. It's, uh, uh, it's wild. I mean, dressing is wild. Um, my, my favorite, uh, vinegar, um, 
has been created with a, an initial damage <laughs> because I yeah because I I I forage a lot of black figs straight from the tree. Yeah. It was I think July, mid June or uh, the beginning of July, and I as I usually do, you know, the period is when you have tons of fruits, so you have to go outside and gather them all. And so I said, okay, I put them on a dish on the table and I will come back later. The problem is that they were really ripe. And so in the afternoon, there were tons of, you know, midges, flies, whatever. And uh, there was, in my kitchen, there was a, a chaos. And I said, oh my, I can't, I can't use them anymore. And I, I, I remember I, I went near those figs, just imagining, you know, I have to throw them away and... Uh, I could smell vinegar and I said, oh, well, I will uh, filter them. And that is my main vinegar infused with elderflowers. Mm -hmm. And there's also a herb that has a very different flavor according to the place where you forage it. It's called um, glecoma deracea. I don't know. Probably it's a round ivy, maybe. Ground ivy. Ground ivy. Yeah, yeah. ground ivy. And the glycoma hederacea is, um, you know, uh, put in vinegar as you would do with, uh, you know, a tea. Um, Gays um, a strong flavor and left inside f black figs vinegar, uh, let it become a bit like balsamic vinegar mm. because it's, it, uh, it belongs to the mint family. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the, the flavor, the mix of the flavors is amazing. So, you know, it's a, a mix of flavors on my tongue, a bit of study and a bit of experiment, of course. And that's what I like because you never stop experimenting. Well, I think when, when you look at what most uh, chefs have, as their basic sort of palette of flavors and ingredients. And then you look away to the wild palette of flavors and ingredients and realize that we have hundreds, yeah. hundreds of species. Uh, it's another, it's another game. It's another. I agree. Whole other situation to begin yeah. with that many elements. And yeah, I, it's, a, it's amazing. Yeah, no, I'm I'm amazed at what you're describing in terms of your your extremely wild approach. Yeah, um, because uh, I've actually not heard of anybody else doing this. Like the 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 uh, the engagement of chefs with wild foods is is very exciting, but at the same time, I feel it only goes so far. I know we are only in terms of the kind of the the scene, you know, the scene around restaurants using wild foods it's to, to be honest it's very shallow because yeah. there's there's so much so many more species most people only use a small range of species and then the repertoire of of uh recipes and approaches to those species is still quite narrow there's many more things so um this is amazing <laughs> thank you actually what i what i do but it's it's not because i decided to do that it's quite normal for me because as i was telling you before we weren't poor 
when I was a child, but it was that my, my grandmother used to cook that way. So everything, for example, let's talk about uh, orange soda, you know, the, the, the orange juice with bubbles, you know? Yes. You know? We didn't have oranges because uh, mainly in Sicily they grow oranges. In Apulia, they started later. And what my grandma did was uh, going in the field, let's say at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, she took my hand, say, come with me. We went in the field and we gathered meadowsweet. And with, you know, the flowers, the tiny flowers, the small flowers, the buds actually not properly opened, uh, she put them into a, a glass, uh, a bottle with some sugar and let it ferment for, let's say, three days. And after that, we had, I can say the commercial name, but you know what. So, And this is what I, I learned and what I've been doing throughout all my life till now. I mean, substituting, trying to find the, um, the wild the right wild species to do something in the kitchen. And uh, I, I found something very useful to help me with that in uh, almonds, because even if it's, you know, almonds are not practically wild, but they helped me in uh, finding a substitute for almost everything uh, concerning milk. So milk, butter, cream, whatever. And using them as a neutral base, they also help in uh, let the wild flavors come on the surface. And uh, so my, 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 I can probably say that the main aspect I've been studying late, lately is, uh, in the recent times particularly, is uh, to um, how to use wild plants, berries, trees, whatever, instead of. Mm. And that's what I do in, uh, for example, traditional Italian recipes. You know, pesto, okay, pesto is made with basil, but instead of basil, I mean, pesto is the simplest one, but you can use almost everything. Or um, I love wild garlic, of course, but I... I really love invasive species also because you have so many, many people throw them away. Uh, it's a pity also because my concern, particularly in those days, these days is about, you know, preserving the environment and trying to preserve biodiversity, which is something people, I don't want to say that I've lost, but most of the people living in the cities and, and not no more in the countryside can't cope with that, can't understand that. Well, I think it, it's funny you've, you, you mentioned the word um, biodiversity. I mean, I guess it's a very relevant word, but I was thinking just a minute ago um, about this uh, international convention on biodiversity. This was the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, this was the output of one of the outputs of the Rio summit back in 1992 where all the world's governments got together and started to say, like, we need to think of a different approach because yeah. we are ruining the planet. Well, of course, that's yeah. it's a long time ago now. Um, what's that? It's nearly nearly 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's where the whole idea of sustainable development was, was at first talked about. 
I mean, I'll just talk about this for a minute because it's just to give some background um, and come back to your point about biodiversity. So for me, the idea of sustainable development, what, no matter what's happened since, whether we've succeeded in, in doing anything that, that, that looks like that, but the idea, I think, is an excellent one because it takes the sense that some people need uh, more more um, you know development of some sort, like they need better better infrastructure of some sort. But the idea that that people need to exist and need to uh, have certain resources in order to live. Yeah, of course. On the one hand, so there's the human the human need. On the other hand, there's there's the rest of the biosphere. And all of the ecology of the planet, the different habitats, the different species. Yeah. So, when we just think about development, we 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 we're going to just try not to think about the second one. We're just yeah, thinking, I know. Uh, you know, people need clothes, they need petrol to drive their cars, and it. We just need all this stuff, and then we think, yeah, it's fair enough if people in some remote village overseas somewhere where they don't even have electricity you know we want to develop so that they have the stuff that we have and everybody can have but we've got to forget about the habitats we've got to forget about the ecosystem because we all know if everyone has the same lifestyle that we have in the west in more developed nations that 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 they can't have it you know we just everybody can't have that you know so the idea of sustainable development was that actually if we could find a way to meet people's needs, which was somehow not taking too much from from the ecology and, and not destroying habitats. If there was some way for us to be getting what we need in some kind of wonderful balance and even reciprocity, you know, that, that actually and, and it's true, you know, like in, in, in subsistence farming, uh, um, well, the result of subsistence farming methods in the UK, there's this great, uh, I think that I think I got this quote, right? This guy, E.O. Wilson, he's, he's like a, an, an, an ecologist. And he says that uh, biodiversity was at its peak just before the Industrial Revolution in, in the UK. So in other words, human presence and everything we were doing was actually creating habitats. Yeah. We weren't doing it because we we're trying to have nature reserves. It's because of everything we were doing to get what we needed was was altering the environment and made it more productive and more biodiverse. So this idea that you know development could be to develop ways of getting our resources that cause this kind of interaction, reciprocity, two-way stuff, and this complex system between our culture and the and the culture of, of ecology, that means that not only do we get plenty, but we're enhancing the systems of life by what we're doing. So that that to me, I think, is a faultless idea. Sustainable development, if you conceive it in the way that, and I think that's the way it was basically conceived to say, we don't want to see that there's an opposition. Over here, we've got biodiversity and ecology. Over here, we've got humans that, that have needs. We don't want to see that, like, for the humans to get what they need, we're going to destroy this. It's the idea that we can make a marriage between the two. Sustain yeah, that, that exactly what I what I I always say at the beginning of my courses, for example, because, you know, usually people come following your courses because they want to know about cooking, uh, identifying the herbs in order to go home and prepare. But I always say uh, my first thing is don't destroy, 
tried to forage, I always say, for example, 5% of a plant or parts of it because there's, well, actually, uh, other foragers, okay, but mainly animals um, and trees and the, the habitat and whatever. And, um, for example, also considering the habitat, um, if a plant is there, there's a reason. If you eliminate it, 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 it's wrong, not just because you are eliminating the plant itself, but because it's a ring in a chain. And many people can't understand that. So I think it's a very important focus. Apart from, you know, people saying, ah, but the, the planet is uh, on ruin, we're, uh, going, we're wasting a lot. Yes, that's important, but it's our behavior. And also the fact that, for example, many, as I was telling you before, many invasive plants can help in feeding or, let's say, um, tissues, uh, clothes, uh, fuel, or, I mean, as you said before, everything we need. Yeah. But uh, with a different point of view. I think this is very important. Well, it's basically the fact that we're using things is 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 can be a, such a positive thing because it integrates these species into our lifestyle into our culture into our communities you know and then when we when we when we know something well because we we notice it we gather it we use it and we remember it and we tell stories about when we harvested this wild garlic and we made this recipe and everybody came together to eat you know, it becomes so integrated within our being and our, our life, you know, that, that it's a part of us, like a member of our family, you know. Yeah, and I, that's true. I, there's, this, there's this issue that some people have, and, and it can be an issue, where you say, oh, you know, you're just looking at these things as resources. You know, this exactly. is old, you know. But, but no, when, when you look at things as a resource that, that is actually part of your way of life, then it isn't just like some sort of... Um, greedy selfish thing you know you, yeah you've woven it into the fabric of your life so you you then you then have an emotional attachment to this species i know <laughs> you know you you kind of love it like you do your family in a way you know um but what i was going to say with the with the with the convention on biodiversity that also came out of the rio summit yeah so we got the sustainable development idea and then and then the convention on biodiversity was supposed to be a uh, an example of this yeah so they said aim one we need to conserve the resources that we have in terms of species so they call that genetic resources aim one conserve genetic resources aim two to develop the sustainable use of genetic resources and this is something which i think has just been passed by you know the 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 the, the objective was that we now need to basically search the planet and look at all these species uh, in a utilitarian way, not because we think, well, we're the most important species and it's all here for us in some kind of arrogant way. Not at all. Th the thing is that if we're going to weave this fabric between us and the ecology, then we need to have a reason to be related and involved. And this this is a strategy you know, that was outlined all of those years ago in the Convention on Biodiversity. What I was going to say, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot about this. <laughs> no, don't worry. I want to know what you think, but 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 the point is, when we do what we do, there you are with your restaurant, and 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 all of us foragers, we're getting out there and gathering and trying to think, how can I make a soup with this? How can I make wine? How can I make a salad? 
I wonder what else this is good for. And we searched the ethnobotanical literature. We talked to chefs and foragers and just everything we can. We're making this inquiry. How may we build a relationship with this species through a practical use? You know, what we're doing then is we're developing the sustainable use of genetic resources. And the, and, 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 and the outcome of that is that we, we, we then, it's like a safety net, you know, that, that, that because we know this species, because we value it, then we're going to, we're going to defend it and we're going to, we're going to try and make sure it's still here tomorrow and the next day and, and the next day and the next day. So what I'm trying to say is that basically your work is that it is this very important work to conserve the resources by finding a way uh, to weave them into human culture. Mm, some people say I have a very strict mind about that because I, I remember when I, I first opened my restaurant, well, it was the first week, a woman came asking for parmigiana, which is a typical Italian dish made with aubergines, but it was Christmas. And I said, no, no parmigiana. <laughs> Because it's not, you know, aubergines, you can find them. If you want it, you can come back in July. But apart from that, I always say uh, there's people, uh, you know, ordering for catering or take away some some uh, recipes on my menu. And I say, no, because I, I, I can't. There's, even if there are plants, you know, in the woods, there's a few and I can't forage them. So I'm always, I'm also trying to, um, let them learn about this specific aspect. Because uh, there's a sentence I always say, you know, like a motto, uh, nature is not a supermarket. Because I've seen many people say, oh, we go foraging because we find stuff as in the ales of the supermarkets. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. And also, uh, but it is, this is linked to a more, you know, uh, economic and um, bureaucracy is that um, nature hasn't got a V18 number. <laughs> this is what I always say because um, it's a completely different world and we need to re-approach to it in a different way. We have lost, I think. Yeah, but uh, but there is, you know, there is an abundance out there with some of these things, for example, like... Um, one of the things that, that I love is with the leaves is just how they they all grow back. Like if you um, if you start to harvest all the seeds of some plant, this is a problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the plant will die. If you dig all the roots, well, maybe it'll die, maybe it won't. Some plants, when you dig the roots, you break into fragments, and so the fragments grow a new plant, so that's a positive thing, actually. Some plants are devol uh, evolved. Their ecology is they want things to dig up the roots because these fragments will produce many more plants than if nothing is digging them up. That's an interesting thing. But but when it comes to leaves, you know, um, I probably don't go with your 5% thing, to be honest, because um, the leaves do grow back. So you can... Yeah, no, of course. No, but wait, wait, wait. It was 5%. It's a kind of, you know, strict rule. I haven't decided. It's a kind of... Uh, um, suggestion because when people discover a plant, at least this is what happens most of the times here, they say, oh, wow, that's amazing. I want it all. Uh, you know, when there's, there's an offer at the, at the supermarket, people go there and buy everything. It's yeah. the same. So, oh, wow, tons of leaves. Okay, perfect. 
the tree is bare. I mean, this is what happens. So this kind of rule, let's say, of 5% is useful in order to uh, don't let people destroy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a kind of suggestion. Also because, for example, garlic, people go there and dig the bulbs up. Now that That is very destructive. There's no question yeah. about it. Also because I always say, you can use its leaves. Yeah. So what... I mean, but there's also kind of tradition because in Italy, you don't eat garlic leaves or, for example, carrot leaves. This is, no, this is something crazy. When you go to the supermarkets and you find carrots, uh, cultivated carrots, there's a normal one, the root, you know. Yeah. And it costs, let's say, uh, one, two euros per bag. And then there's the carrots with their leaves and they cost something like 30, 40% more. Even if people don't know how to use those leaves. They're not using them, no. no. Because it's a fashion, you know. And it, this is what, what, I mean, uh, what should be explained to people. This links to the fact that 5% because you need to understand what to use, uh, why, and the best way to nurture yourself and not to destroy the planet. Mm. Yeah. And nurture yourself. That's a lovely aspect too, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure this must be a big focus with, 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 with these kind of salads and dishes that you're serving, like yeah. the health benefits that that kind of food has. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what my, my clients are mostly astonished of because let's say uh when i talk about uh canopodium wild spinach and i say that it has got uh let's say uh eight ten uh percent more iron than the supermarket one mm. they say oh really because they can't believe it because they think that cultivated stuff is full of nutrients or what is uh, what I, I I like best? What I I really I'm really in love with that is conifers, because particularly you know fir pine, they um, I prepare a tea, I prepare a syrup, and uh, to serve with uh, uncheeses, and this one is uh, it has I think twenty percent more vitamin C than lemons, mm. citruses. Mm. And people say, oh, wow, well, that's incredible. That's also because I think most of the people um, can't understand properly what's inside what they're eating. Yeah. And uh, discovering wild plants help in this sense. Of course, you, you, you may want to pay attention because you, you surely know, for example, um, ombrellifere and uh, are mostly toxic plants, so you need to eat them not so often and uh, you have to pay attention in identifying them. But uh, it's interesting because when people, I, I, I used to say, when people enter the tunnel of wild plants... <laughs> They don't easily go out anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. 
I, I, offer a, I offer a kind of funny warning when people come on my walks. Tell uh, me, because I have one too. Yeah? Okay, let's swap warnings. Yeah. <laughs> so I say to people, okay, if any of you like hiking and you, you really like to sort of set out in the morning with your journey and your destination, you're going to hike quickly and you're going to go 30 kilometers or however long and you're going to go straight there. You maybe stop for lunch, but you're going to keep moving. I said, if this is what you like to do when you go out walking, you need to leave now. Because after you finish today, and I've introduced you to all these plants, you'll never be able to do that again. You, you, are, <laughs> you are condemned to distraction. You are condemned to, to stopping and checking what this plant is. You are condemned to climbing over the fence to see what that bush is over there. You are <laughs> that, that, that's amazing and funny because you, you tell them you are condemned. <laughs> and that's right. That's right. No, what I what I used to say is funny because it's almost the same thing, but in an in another way. Because most of the people coming, uh, well, I live in the mountains in the pre-Alps near the Lake of Como, and most of the people come from Milan, and come here also because you know making um, uh, following a foraging, a foraging course is also a way to pass a different Saturday and Sunday, a different weekend. So they come here to stay in the countryside in the mountain, uh, good weather, you know. And uh, when they come back on Monday, they are stuck at a traffic light in the center of Milan. But there's a tiny piece of green near the traffic light and the traffic light becomes green. And there's <laughs> all the cars behind, you know sounds whatever but the first car of the person who followed the foraging course isn't moving because being in the foraging tunnel is looking at a tiny piece of green try to identify if there's uh i know oxalis sorrel or um whatever and that's amazing because people call me you you were right it's a, something spontaneous something they can't control and i like it because it means that there's uh, tiny seeds in our soul yeah. linking us back to our ancestors and there's curiosity and there's um, hope mm. i like to see it that way a bit romantic but i, I think well it's that we know there's something to eat you know most people unfortunately They'll go outside and they don't understand there's something to eat, you know. That, that's, yeah. that's crazy. But so we get to sort of, um, yeah, like you say, there's these little seeds inside of us and, and we get to put a bit of water on that seed and, and let it yeah. sprout. But then it's going to grow. It doesn't need us to come back tomorrow and pour some more water on it. It's, uh, it's already active, you know. Once, once people have that. And I think that is that is the discovery, you know, in, in one sense, that you you realize there's something to eat here. Yeah. You don't have to go somewhere else to get something to eat. Um, but it, I guess it isn't just that. It's it's when you've when you've, uh, as you say, the <clears throat> the curiosity and so on. I don't know. It just makes you um, it makes you an active participant. You know. That's true. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah. You get involved now. And, and and it's because and really really what it is 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 you realize you're an organism 
these days we think that we're something else. You know, we think we're an object or we think we're a machine. I think if you honestly sort of ask people how they think about their place in the world, you know, and it is like we're a machine. We use money to get stuff yeah. to us, you know. There's no relationship there. It's, it's just like a machine. You just put your money into that slot machine and it spits out some product that you've purchased. So there's, and whereas all of a sudden you become an organism that's, that's part of this dance of life. You know, there's, there's stuff around you is touching you with you with your eyes and then you touch it with your hands. And then, and that, that's also a very important aspect of the fact that you, um, all of your senses are involved. Mm. And sometimes I wonder, you know, uh, after a foreign day, I go to bed and I start thinking, is there some other human activity who can let you use all your senses altogether? And this is another meaning for me of mm. the path I've chosen. Mm. And also because I'm, I never get bored. There's always something to discover, something to talk about, something to taste, something to create. It's never ending. So I guess, uh, you know, in the kitchen, we're thinking about the, the sensory thing with, with, uh, with, with flavor and aroma, um, maybe more than the other senses. Yeah, you, of course. You must, have that, you must have that very well developed. I wonder, is that, you know, has that been a journey for you to, to um, differentiate between flavors and... and I, I, I don't know if I understood properly your question, but these made me think, make me think of something. When I, I, I started foraging with my grandma, what we foraged most were, uh, you know, dandelion chicory, or uh, what we call in South Italy, chicoriette, that is a small chicories, all the, spe- the sour species that uh, go together, there are at least 22 species going together in a dish, in a recipe that is called the chicoriette. We just put them cut in a, in a pan with extra virgin olive oil and wild garlic. And if you want, you can add some chili later. That's all. I mean, that's the, uh, um, a basic recipe for all the farmers in South Italy. And I remember that not every day, but at least twice a week, we used to eat that. And I was, you know, something like, I, I, I can't stand it anymore because I was a child and that was sour. And so I said, please, no, because I don't like the taste. You mean when I grew bitter? Bitter, sorry, bitter. Yeah. Yeah. bitter. It was bitter, so I, I couldn't stand it because I was a child, you know, and the, the flavor, the, 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 the bitter aroma, I, I, I disliked it. And when I, I grew up, you know, uh, I think our, as our body, also our, our perception changes. And so, uh, for example, particularly in the, 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 in the last two years, I don't like sweet hmm. things and I, I like bitter. And this helped me a lot also in shaping new, new recipes and new, new ideas. For example, I don't use sugar. Uh, oh, there's a kind, uh, there's a, um, a nice um, uh, aspect to consider because in um, in Italy we mostly use sea salt, mm. and uh, most of it comes from a place in northern Apulia 
called the Margherita di Savoia, which is a place on the seaside uh, where the, it's it's full of pink flamingos. It's a very nice place. Many people go there to visit because it's, you know, astonishing as a panorama, as a, um, a habitat. It's a very nice habitat. And I don't know why I was one night I, I, I dreamt of, the, of this place and I woke up in the morning and I said, oh, my, well, uh, how do we create sea salt? So there's, uh, you know, basins with seawater, the water evaporates and uh, sea salt grains, let's say, flakes. It, it's what, what remains, is what remains. And I said, why well, don't trying that with fruits? <laughs> so that I started making it with my dehydrator because I didn't have anything to, you know, let the water, the, the juice evaporate. And so I have those flakes of fruit oh. that actually it's fructose. But you can do that with uh, birch leaves or uh, maple leaves. And if, well, this was, my idea was a kind of substitute because I'm, um, I received from a member of the Association of Foragers this um, uh, object to make a hole in the trunk of birch and maple to obtain the, the let's say the syrup but i i i don't want to use it <laughs> i mean because i care for the tree i know there are some i i um i use it i obtained the, the birch syrup and maple syrup but uh, it's a something i always do with you know I don't like it, so I try to find an alternative, mm. and they say it's what I found, and it's uh, also it, it, it depended on my the change of my perception of flavors and aroma of taste. So you now have a number of different ones, do you? A number of different ones of these these flakes that you've dehydrated from from different. Yeah. 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 Wow, and and it and it is sweet when you do maple leaf. Absolutely, or, absolutely, or, yeah. yeah. The, the the sweetest one is um, of course fruits, and uh, what what I like, for example, is um, blackberries, but not so ripe when they are a bit red because it's sugary but acidic at the same time. So yeah. you really can invent things, and using them, for example, in pastries, is amazing. Wow. Yeah, well, I like experimenting. It's like you know, a, a baby, a child in a in a toy shop. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so great. It just, it just. But the thing is, um, I guess, why is there only one of you? I mean, like, we need, we need many, and and it's and it, there isn't only one of you in the sense, like, but 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 you've been very thorough with what you're doing. You're doing very uh, comprehensive, and and uh, it's a big. Uh, it's a big project and a, and a, and a, you know, it's a great ongoing study that you're doing to, to, because it's one thing to discover what's out there. You know, I've thought about my journey with plants and thought, well, the first bit was finding out what was out there. And then it was finding out where the really good patches are for all of the things that are out there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm definitely in stage three now, which is like, okay, but you know, we we want to know the best things that we can do with this because in the end 
we need to recreate culture around these plants and 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 it starts it starts with the super curious you know and and i agree that's what i always say yeah, yeah. so i'm putting you in the category you 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 are the super curious yeah that's it and you know what i i told you i i left apulia to go in the pre alps to go, to live here and I started buying books. Uh, in in Italy, there weren't and there aren't a lot of foraging books. So I started looking abroad. And, um, well, one of my first ones. <laughs> ah, ah, my book. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I've been extremely lucky because I I started at at you know, I, I wanted to, to 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 explain this because when I was in my let's say is seventeen eighteen, I had to decide what to what to study at university, and my first year was at um, the agriculture faculty, and the only exam I passed was botany and immediately after I came back to my old love that is foreign languages and I followed courses of Anglo-Saxon, Gothic, uh, Mitteldeutsch, ancient languages and you know many people say classical studies aren't useful. That's untrue because thanks to my studies I could read manuscripts and recipes from, you know, our ancestors. Yeah. And that's, I, I think I, I'm grateful for that because it's the base mm -hmm. of, my, of my study. It gave me a different scope. It's amazing. So you, you managed to find some ancient recipes for some of the, some of the wild plants and, 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 and you've brought that into... Yeah, yeah. I, I, let's say there's... A, Oh, a very important manuscript in the British Museum that's called Lacnunga. Lac uh, was a physician in Anglo-Saxon leech. And uh, it's full of recipes uh, for physicians to cure phytotherapy, let's say. Mm. But inside, if you read between the lines, you can find cuisine. Okay. And it's fascinating. The, the, um, I told you about um, ground ivy. Yes. yes. You can find it there. In the, you know, there's <laughs> plenty of stuff to discover. But not only, of course, in that manuscript, there's uh, tons of even poems, even, uh, but even Shakespeare, let's say, there are some hints throughout his works. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit crazy about that because I like literature. So I, I uh, put together literature and white food. I think this is, this, is, this, is, this is amazing because, you know, there is a really big thing around uh, ethnobotany, which is... Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. This is something else, like in terms of this historical um, approach that you're taking. Do you know anyone that's really done this, like as their specialism, just like the, the historical uses of wild plants? Well, there's, I think, many ethnobotanists. I can't pronounce probably his name, Lucas Lu uh, Lucas. Tsai. 
Yes, Wukes Wuchai actually, but as he as he uh, corrected me <laughs> when I did a yeah, because I, I didn't know how to pronounce it. It's, yeah. it's Polish, I think, and but, I don't know how to pronounce it. I had called Wukash Lukash for years, but okay. the day I did a podcast with him, he finally put his foot down and <laughs> made me pronounce his name right. <laughs> okay, so I, I followed Wukash, him yeah. before. Yeah. I've been reading his uh, papers, and he's one of the, the people I think is doing this job, but mainly, you know, uh, uh, in many different countries. Yeah. I, I'm... Even if I'm not, you know, graduated in ethnobotany or I didn't study it properly, it's kind of hobby to me. Mm. Um, I have my method and I focus on uh, Scandinavian and Germanic stuff because that's what I like. Right. I don't know. I mean, let me give a look because I think there's uh, surely uh, Andrea Pieroni. Yeah. I don't know if you ever heard of him. I know him. He's yeah. from uh, Polenzo Gastronomic University. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, the the focus isn't on the history. I I agree. Wukash is is doing some historical stuff, but it just it just made me realise this this is probably a whole discipline that I don't know. It's, it, uh, like I'm not aware of a of a of a text. I'm not aware of a, of a text that is just doing the kind of work that you're describing there. No, I, I don't think so, because I'm always searching. I'd love to find something like that. And I was telling you, I know Andrea Pironi because he is the series editor of this yeah. kind of texts. But they focus on, let's say, uh, if Solanum Nigrum is uh, edible or not. Uh, where um, if you forage it in the Middle East, uh, it can be edible. And why, you know, compounds or uh, ancient recipes, but not, I mean, my my approach, as I told you before, is probably more romantic because I go delve into what uh, our ancestors were saying about plants and try to give it a modern uh, way of be, being intended. I don't know how to explain that. It's just sometimes it's just a sentence, a verse with a plant in it. And I, uh, there's a kind of, you know, idea in my mind that I start searching and at the end I come out with uh, different recipes or different cooking suggestions. Yeah. That's what I do. I mean, I'm... Uh, yeah, I mean it's a point of departure, isn't it? You 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 find a place to start from based on the way people used to use something, or or the way that people used to think about it, um, which is what you might find in Shakespeare or something. Well, let's say uh, it's a stupid thing and doesn't concern cuisine. But for example, Shakespeare says, "Rosemary, that's for remembrance." And now everybody's saying that you if you smell rosemary, it helps you remind things. Yeah, yeah. So I've the- got a funny story about that. So, so I'm I'm uh, I'm visiting my mother recently, and uh, she's she's old. She's got she's got Parkinson's, um, and she's quite frail. So she has carers come to see her, and we're sitting outside in the garden, and um, sometimes. Part of the Parkinson's is is her body kind of shuts down and she she can't really talk very well and she can't. But I know rosemary is a stimulant. Yeah. So I get the rosemary and I I 
rub it under her nose and say, come on, mum, breathe that in. And she loves rosemary. She loves herbs. So she's right with it. She's going, oh, okay, that's good. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, then I broke a big branch off the bush and I stuck it in the letterbox. We're sitting in front of the front door and I stuck it in the letterbox so that I would remember to take it in so that we put it in the kitchen and I can put it, put it in, in, uh, in the cooking later. Yeah. Yeah. But then we go through the door and because my mum needs help and I've opened the door, I didn't notice the rosemary. <laughs> I didn't remember it. I walked past it and in we go. And then a while later, um, the carer arrives and she comes in holding the branch of rosemary. <laughs> Why have you put this branch of rosemary? I've been this branch of rosemary. And, and she said, uh, it, it, was it for me? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, my name is Rosemary. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, I didn't know your name is Rosemary, but now I will remember. Of course. <laughs> they're holding this. So it's so funny you say that the connection in Shakespeare is that Rosemary helps you remember. But, um, but it is actually very literally, there's studies been shown that if you, if you, if you do this thing of smelling Rosemary, whilst you're doing some kind of mental task, like an exam. Yeah, it helps you. The yeah. people will perform better when they've done that. So it must also help to remember in an exam. So it's, 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 it's real, it's true. It's not just a line in Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, but my example was to, to explain in a way that I really find suggestions in every place, in every, let's say, in a magazine at a hairdresser, you go there and read something, mm, let's give a look. Try to search for that and discover. And I always come out with something at the end. Of course, you need to know where to look for and how to search. And uh, it's uh, something, uh, you need time. Yeah. You need time. You need time. And anyway, in, 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 in discussing w whether or not there is a book that kind of conveys all of this stuff and and you 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 seem to think that there isn't one and uh i seem to think that you should write one and i'm writing this good <laughs> i'm writing it and i actually i am uh, um it will be ready next year i think because there's uh one of my favorite families that is uh ombrellifere okay. in italian you know the ones with the umbrella and uh, it's full of things to say, full of recipes, of ideas, and, you know, ferula comunis. I don't know the name in English, unfortunately. It's a toxic one, a very big one. And uh, they use it in Apulia to prepare, um, make, I don't know how it's called, baskets, a maybe. Basket. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they use it to make baskets. Baskets, but they also ate it. And I tried when I was a child. I tried the juice. And I've heard of other people that uh, used to cook with that. And recently, some people, for example, uh, even if the India Association of Foragers have read a post about that, uh, they are in, used to eat conium maculatum. Right. And so I think... There's oh. something hidden we, we don't know yet or that we have lost. Not specifically on toxic plants, I yeah. mean. So I'm going to 
to delve into Mbeliefer more because I think there's so much more to be discovered. Well, this, I mean, one, one point of interest for me with, with Unbeliever, and just, we'll just, I'll just quickly say for people listening that, that don't know what we're talking about. So this is, this is uh, otherwise known as the Carrot family or Asteraceae. And as Carrot you, family. Yeah, and, and as you say, the, the, the flowers all look like an umbrella. Yeah. But the really familiar ones, just, just for everybody listening, uh, there's lots of herbs and spices. So you've got things like parsley and fennel, cumin, coriander, dill. Alexander's. Well, maybe less familiar that one. For foragers, it's familiar. Yeah, and then and I love it. Yeah. Also because yeah. Of the Latin name, the binomial helps yeah. you a lot. Yeah. Olus atrum, atrum means black, and it's see, it's a black. Yeah. And the smyrnium refers to to the fact it smells like myrrh, doesn't it? Is is that right? Yeah. Smyrnium. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what I was going to say is that the. the the, the group that interests me, there's the 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 Oenanthes species, uh, which which in English they're they're water dropworts, and yeah, our really most deadly carrot. Well, possibly not, but but the but the plant that's killed more people, yeah, uh, in in England than any other one is is probably hemlock water dropwort, which which grows very abundantly by the rivers near here. Yeah, that's it. But there's this one that's in the same genus called corky fruited water dropwort. Which uh, I don't ever. We don't. We don't have it in Italy, I think. But it's a good edible. They eat it a lot in Turkey. So really, this is the uh, the funny thing. Sorry for the question. Can you remember the binomial? I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to move. Okay. So I've got my plant book. I'll have a look. Ah, enantepimpinelloides, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We have some specimens in uh, near the border with Slovenia. We don't have it in Lombardy and or, or elsewhere in Italy. They just found some specimens there. We don't have it much in, in my county either, but apparently in Dorset there's a lot. And it has some um, edible tubers as well, apparently. Corky fruited water dropwort, yeah. So that's a funny thing. You'd think that the, this genus with, with the most deadly plant would all be deadly. And yet this, this is an edible one. And here's another one, <clears throat> which um, which has got a question mark over it. So, uh, Lacanali, Oenanthe, Lacanali, L-A-C-H-E-N-A-L-I-L. And now for us, that's parsley water dropwort. Um, now, I suspect that that one is also not poisonous. Now, nobody listening should go and eat it. But I suspect it's not poisonous because because there's records of cattle eating it. And ah, not, okay. And not suffering any harm. Now, if cattle eat it, they eat a lot, and so, they don't don't get harmed. So maybe it's harmed. So so it's that, edible. That suggests to me that it's edible, and yet that so that's potentially two in the in the same same genus. So that's that's kind of surprising to me. Um, anyway, we need to know more. You know, we, that's the problem. See, I, I I cannot understand how such an important subject as this. Is left to the to the to the independent super curious like you and and, and me and Wukash and, and the Association of Foragers and people all around the world like us who have just decided we think this is so interesting and we're going to give all our time and attention. Yeah, it shouldn't just be like why is the World Health Organization and the and the uh, and the what is it the Food and Agri and Drug Administration? Yeah, I agree with you. 
these these things should be at the top of the list for our priority. I agree with you, and that's what I, I always say. Also, because it depends on the countries. For example, um, there's a herb, it's Ornithogalum um, umbellatum. Probably you know it as Star of Bethlehem. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah like the- we, currently, we currently eat it, the whole plant, tubers under the ashes in the, in the um, fireplace. It's a common uh, herb, always been eaten in uh, Greece and Apulia, South Italy. Elsewhere, oh no, it's toxic, you can't. It happens the same with uh, lesser celandine. In Italy, if you tell people you can eat it, oh, no, absolutely not. You will die. <laughs> so right. Right. it depends on the countries, on the places, on the people, on the law that has been uh, perpetrated. Yeah, and so what we need is we do need some laboratory analysis of some of these plants to really settle yeah, I the agree, question. and that's a dream. <laughs> But but like it's a dream I'm pursuing, you know. Like I, I the, the 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 name of this podcast, World Wild, is uh, is also the name of the project that isn't very much uh, happening yet. Like, but but I've been talking for years about we need this World Wild project. Then we need to get millions of pounds and dollars and yen and every other currency behind this because this research to explore the genetic resources of our planet and find out how we can engage with these species and, and get them back into use, you know, to promote our well-being. And then the reciprocal relationship that we have with the plants promotes the well-being of the ecology. You know, this is the most important work on the planet. And, you know, the only people who are actually, you know, putting money behind exploring genetic resources right now, Monsanto. I know. They're exploring the genetic resources so they can splice them onto wheat and, and other things and make their terrible Frankenstein crops even more terrible. You know, whereas, whereas that's not what that thing was written for. It was written for people to, to, as a global project. Let's find out what these resources are, because if not, we're going to see things go extinct that could have been the key to our survival. You know, that's for our sake. <laughs> and then for the sake of the biosphere. When we know these things, then when we anchor them with our with our culture and our devotion to their survival, because they're important to us now, and not just important because they're useful, because when you work with something, you fall in love with it, and then you don't want your loved ones to die. So you know, this is such important work, and um, you know, uh, you know, I just want to cheer and celebrate and applaud your work because it is so important and so focused and so detailed. Um, but you know, we need thousands more to just get on because it's just normal human behavior it is normal human behavior to notice the other living things that are living in the same place as you are and to ask a question who are you and what (laughs) you do and how can i involve you in my life and that's why we need to know are you poisonous or if i fry you if i leave you soaking in ashes for six weeks Maybe may you not be poisonous anymore. These are the questions and the lines of inquiry that every, 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 every human being alive needs to be making now. And then we might make it. We might make it right now. Asking these questions, except for a few people, we're in danger of, of, of losing the species out there 
and losing ourselves because we're not going to survive. You know, we're not going to survive unless we anchor ourselves in the uh, the life systems of the biosphere. And that's what living things do. They just get anchored in the life system of this place that they live in. And I just love it now because we're in lockdown and everybody has to just notice their immediate surroundings. <laughs> At least they might stand a better chance of noticing just now. Yeah, I totally agree with you. But there's so much work to be done because there's not so many people who'd like to 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 come on this path because uh, uh, somehow the other different kind of life is easier. Mm. Yeah, well, maybe maybe it's like people are saying it's got to collapse before people get back to normal. It's, it, to me, it's like we're under a spell. Everyone's enchanted. Yeah, exactly. Industrial consumer thing. <laughs> They're enchanted. They've been bewitched, you know, and something needs to happen to just snap them out of it. And they go, oh, where am I? Oh, <laughs> oh, I forgot. I forgot. But now I remember, you know, so we need, we need, but yeah. maybe, maybe. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully we can, we can. As you can, we can see uh, a change like that. Yeah, well, maybe this is the beginning. You know, I've always been part of the thing. I'm like, surely, you know, if we just if we just communicate this message well enough, people will get it. You know, Blind. yeah, you're right. Also, because it's not so common to communicate this kind of, you know, content. Yeah, and and it is it is like it is like good news. You know, like it's it's just like, hey, here's this message. <laughs> This is a really good mu- news, you know. This is this is a message about your surroundings. You know, your surroundings are full of food, and uh, now this is a message about your life yeah. and the life around you. Mm. Mm. That's it. That you are part of this positive thing. You know, this this very the life is life is very strong. Life is very nurturing. It's complex and in some ways dangerous, but like. You are invited to this party. You know, you do not have to stay outside in your industrial consumer bubble. You know, you can actually participate in this life that's that's actually all around you. And it, it's not so difficult. Yeah. It isn't so difficult because you can start with one plant, you can start with one recipe. And and that's why, you know, like for me for I, me small steps, one after the other. Well, it's funny because you know, you held my book up earlier and, and, and what, what I did when I wrote that book was I tried to be as comprehensive as possible, so I did. I did quite a lot of research, but 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 actually, there's 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 maybe 300 and something plants there, and with the ones that are mentioned within the entries, where I say, well, there's a similar one that's also good. There's maybe about 300, nearly one for every day of the year. There's about 360. Yeah, uh, and and I wanted to be thorough, and and my friend Robin Harford has since been more thorough. Not that not that he's put it in book form yet, but he's got a list of about. Uh, Seven or eight hundred British plants that you could you could eat or use. But the funny thing is now, I'm starting to think. I'm working on a couple of projects at the moment. We're 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 working on a little uh, magazine that we can give away, and we're working on um, a database, which is something I want to talk to you about, and just some simple films to teach kids to forage. And what I'm realizing is I don't want 300 plants <laughs> in this magazine. On this database to begin with, or in the films, you know, we want to take maybe fifteen or twenty. Yeah, to begin uh, with. Well, just find the ones that everybody can find. Yeah, you know, because- I, I I started a magazine in Italian uh, five years ago. Okay. 
It's called uh, Iskugan. It's a Swedish meaning in the forest. And to start with, I encountered the same issue you're saying, you're telling about. It is plants were so many and I wanted to restrict the scope in order to let people understand the easiest one. So recently I, I changed and I began making, um, you know, monographies. So there's the first one on cabbages, <laughs> crucifere, brassicace, brassicas. The second is about conifers. The last one the, on the 21st March, you know, spring wildflowers. And that's a huge one because yeah. there's uh, really all the wildflowers in the Mediterranean area. So it's interesting because it al- also helps you understanding, uh, is it necessary to go to people and tell them about those 300, 700, whatever species? As you said, um, you can start little by little just to see those that are in your habitat around you. Yeah. So that you can recognize them and identify them easily. Yeah. And then later on, if you'd like, you can go on with something more specific. Well, I um, think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what I pull out of the last the just the very last thing that you said there is 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 this little three words just to start. Yeah. Because we need people to start. Feel able just yeah. to start. Because once you have this beginning, then then we're like we said earlier, you know, they're condemned. <laughs> they're, condemned. <laughs> they're stuck in the tube. You know, <laughs> you can't get out. But but it's a it's a it's a very nice place to be. We should emphasize what a nice place it is to be when you know what there is to eat around you. And and it, it, there's nothing like it when if you've never done it and then you go out and gather a nettle from your garden and, and you make this soup, you know. We've 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 just started a, a, the the Facebook group foraging for kids. I don't know if you've been on it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. There are parents who this week have have done something simple with wild garlic or nettles or something for the first time, and you just think, um, wow, you know, this is they have, this is just a start. You know, this is yeah, this is yeah, absolutely it's good stuff. And you know, we think about how to convey the message, and and um, I guess though. Uh, you're trying all sorts of things, right? You've got a restaurant to do that. You've got a magazine to do that. We're just uh, trying to get the word out, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen after, you know, the lockdown because uh, we don't know what's, uh, if restaurants will be opening again and the measures they will take for that. But at least I'm in the mountains in open spaces I don't have, you know, 80 seats because I want to promote the fact that less people eating good food. Also because, as I told you before, uh, nature is not a supermarket. I go there and forage the right percentage, the right um, amount for a number of people that can't be too many. So I'm lucky in this sense, but at the same time, there's a strict uh, regulations to follow. And so we'll see what happens later. Yeah, no, it's causing a big change for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. But I've seen that in the UK is a bit different. You can 
try to go out. You're you're free in a way. Here, really, you can't do anything. <laughs> anyway. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we perhaps don't have such strong restrictions. I mean, we, we, we're still trading as, as forager. So I'm still... Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen people um, saying, I'm going uh, on the coast today to, to forest and see weeds. Uh, do you think if it's worth it or not? Here you can't. <laughs> I'm lucky because I just go here outside on the top of the mountain. There's plenty <laughs> of primrose and uh, violet and hawthorn, uh, whatever. So I, uh, it's my land. I go there and forage and come back in uh, 10 minutes. But I, I, if I think to people living in a two rooms flat in the center of Milan, I die. No, you. I mean, I feel very lucky because we're also we're in the country and we can go in the garden. Even if we couldn't go anywhere else, we've got a garden, and you, you just got to feel for people that are stuck in a flat somewhere and and, and don't have that. That's. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, what would be what would be nice maybe because because I'm really trying to. Uh, encourage people just to find an easy to find plant and, and, and start working with it. Um, so do you have some favorite things that you do with nettles? Oh, apart from <laughs> letting them rot under the, the rainwater in order to obtain threads and, uh, you know, to prepare tissue. Okay. Uh, you do some, you do some nettle fiber um, yeah, natural fiber, yeah. No, I was thinking about, uh, well, but it's something really easy. I use uh, nettle powder, but uh, dehydrated at, let's say, 30 degrees Celsius, because you, you won't use more, in order to let it uh, remain green to yeah. uh, color, to give, um, to give color to pastry, to uh, dough. Yeah, and so that at the end you you obtain this uh, very green color in uh, crackers, biscuits, or whatever. I'm I'm collaborating with a star chef, and um, last summer there was a big uh, winery that was uh, had to to present uh, its new wines, and uh, they were organizing a dinner on uh, Monte Bianco in the Alps. And uh, it was uh, something like uh, 4,000 meters, I don't know. And they asked for an alpine dinner with all the herbs from the Alps. But I, 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 I brought with me this nettle powder and we made, uh, I, I explain in English, it's a sort of Wellington, you know, the, the yeah, beef yeah, it's a sort of wet, but in, in a crust. And there was uh, this deer inside and outside the crust, the deer was pink and the crust outside with nettle powder was shocking green. <laughs> and it was, you know, a contrast. A ve- it was amazing. I have some pictures and I will, I will send them if you, if you want to see it. That's, yeah. It's uh, something nice. And it's also really easy to make. Otherwise, I make melokia, which is a Greek recipe, and uh, it's just a mallow and nettles, a kind of puree, let's say. We say in Italian vellutata because it's just like, you know, very smooth. Yeah. And uh, with um, a tablespoon of almond cream inside, and it's a comfort food. 
It's just like a little soup, a little smooth yeah, soup. Yeah, but it's not so liquid as a soup. It's much more like, uh, uh, you know, pumpkin uh, puree. Okay. It's a bit of uh, a halfway between a soup and a puree. Mm. It's uh, warming in uh, autumn and winter nights. Yeah. I used to put it in the, um, on my freezer. I yeah. used to freeze it so that you have... Uh, plenty of it in winter when iron is needed to boost your body. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that sounds lovely. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to speak to you. For and... me too. Thank you yeah. for the opportunity. Yeah, well, I hope things get back to to uh, a situation where you can, you know, carry on serving food to your guests because uh, it sounds an amazing experience and I need to come and have Absolutely. That. When the lockdown is over... Please come here as a guest. I will really appreciate if you can come and stay with me for a while so that we can forage together. That would be amazing. Thank you for listening to this week's World Wild podcast. And as ever, I'd encourage you to go to the uh, Forager website, um, to the page that hosts the podcast, www.forager.org.uk forward slash podcast. And that's going to give you various links and, and notes about this this uh, week's episode. So it's always worth having a look there. And also check out my Instagram page, which is Miles Irving Forager. And if you are on Facebook, do check out the Foraging for Kids Facebook page because um, there's lots of stuff going up there. And even if you're not a kid and don't have kids, it's, it's all kind of relevant and nicely accessible videos and, and other posts um, showing what people are doing with wild plants and giving you some tips what you could do during this this lockdown period and, and, and beyond. And then lastly, I just want to mention a plant for this week. For those of you who are in a similar kind of climate or, or, or region as, as, as we are, uh, there's a plant called garlic mustard, otherwise known as jack by the hedge. And as the name suggests, it's mustardy and garlicky. So you, when you chew down on the leaves or the flowers or any part of that plant, you're going to get this um, slightly sort of oniony flavor and uh, slash sort of garlicky flavor and, and, and also a distinct sort of mustardy heat. Just now, so to begin with, the, the leaves of that plant, when it first, when it first grows either from seed or from the the uh, it's biennial rootstock. They're kind of kidney shaped with a with a sort of toothed edge and quite dark green. Just now they're coming up with with a slightly more nettly, a slightly more pointy leaf and a slightly paler green as the flowering stems are coming up. And and where we are, the flowering stems are, are fully up and are opening up. The buds are opening up into these beautiful white flowers. Which as a, a mustard family or cabbage family plant, those flowers have four petals. That's quite typical of this family. And in fact, the old Latin name for the, the family was crucifere for, for cross, which obviously has four branches to it. So you can pick those flowers, you can pick those leaves, have the lovely sort of garlicky, oniony, mustardy thing. Uh, it's quite a strong flavor, so you might want to use it with other flavors. But there you are. Just, um, just get out and have a look for the garlic mustard this week. Okay, well, that's it. And uh, thanks again for listening to this week's World Wild Podcast. <laughs>